From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to another special edition coming to you via Zoom. Got three of the four Wharton Moneyball hosts on here this afternoon. Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, this is Cade Massey. We'll be here for a full two-hour version of the show. Glad to have you along. Glad to be with you two gentlemen. How are things going where you are? Excellent, well, excellent. Watched a lot of football this past weekend. Not all of it particularly entertaining to me, but yeah. Well, I, I think about you when I see the Pats below 500. I do think about you, Shane. So we're going to get some scoop on that here over the next little bit. Adi Weiner is unable to join today. He's off doing Adi Weiner things. He will be back. Of course, as we have been doing for the last six months, that's open in the world of coronavirus. It is the context of sports and our lives. What have we learned over the last week, gents? Anything new, anything catching your eye on the COVID-19 front? Well, so it's interesting. So the thing that's caught my eye is that there's been a lot of predictions. And let's be clear, these are predictions. There's been predictions. And these are probably predictions also. We've talked about this conditional on the behavior of individuals staying as they're trending or even the same, that the next six to 12 weeks will be the worst in terms of X. Now, the reason I say X is when someone makes that statement, um, it's possible it could be the worst in terms of cases, like there will be more cases than we've had before, but both due to therapeutics, both due to knowledge, both due to who is getting it, it's a, as we've talked about a number of times, it's a mixture distribution. We might see much higher caseload, but maybe not as high a hospitalization rate and not as high a death rate. So right. that's the part that is like when I read these studies that say, you know, between Thanksgiving and New Year's is going to be the worst we've ever seen on what metric. Now, normally, as we know, they've been tracking very close. Like if you tell me the number of cases, I can pretty much predict the number of hospitalizations and predict the number of deaths. It's been somewhat non-stationary. Obviously, it's been going down. But that's the first thing that caught my eye is that how can we predict, let's call these three measures and what, what do we expect? Do you, do you have off the top of your head a heuristic for us? So if we're about to pass our peak daily count of new cases, and yet we have a lower rate of hospitalization, we have a lower fatality rate, what, what's the exchange rate? So how much lower is our hospitalization rate now than it was in May or June? How much lower is our case fatality rate now than it was then? Um, because presumably we're going to go flying past our earlier peak and we're going to be at some premium in terms of just volume of people we're pushing down, you know, this queue, but they're going to be dropping into the worst bins at a lower rate. So do we have some sense of what the difference is? You well, said it was non-stationary. Yeah. Here's the data I remember for, let's call it the first three months, which were, well, let's call it, sorry, once things ramped up, I don't mean in January, let's call it between March and May. Here are the numbers I remember seeing. If you took the ratio of the number of cases to the number of deaths, it was probably somewhere in the three to 5% range. In other words, the death rate was very high for the number. And I should say cases, I should say reported cases. Mm-hmm. We can we talked about this last week. The number of actual cases is obviously, well, the number of reported cases is clearly a lower bound to the number of actual cases. But that number has been about, was historically around three to 5%. Let's look at the numbers now. So we have roughly 
8 million cases have been reported in the United States. We have roughly 220,000 deaths. That's obviously less than 3%. Because um, 240 would be 3%. If we take a, a, a mixture distribution, meaning it was probably 5 or 6% early on, now it's probably somewhere in the baseline of around 1%, a half a percent to 1% yeah. of those cases that are reported. Okay. And I think the ratio of deaths from hospitalizations has been somewhere in the one sixth to one quarter range, somewhere around there. So if we went to a number, Kate, just answering your question, if we went to 60, 70, 80,000, people are saying 100,000 cases a day, that's why people are predicting we may end up at 1,500, 2,000 deaths a day, because just looking at a 1% of 100,000, 150,000, we're at 1,000 to 1,500 deaths a day, which gets you to why some people are projecting 350 to 400,000 deaths by the end of January. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So even though our, our, the severity cases are a much lower percentage, we're just talking about the a volume that is going to partially offset those gains, essentially. And there's a lot of concern that as, as we move into colder weather, the volume increases are only going to, are only going to get worse. Um, all no, right. no, one, one kind of uh, social, like kind of like distancing and stuff like that, at least in this part of the country will probably kind of be just by de facto, a little bit more enforced during. Well, that's interesting, climbs, Shane. So is that true? I mean, is that true? Because Say more about that, because there's going to be what if people just move their social activities from outside to inside? And so, well, maybe there's, I, I, maybe yeah, I guess I, I think there will be a corresponding like in terms of big group activities. You know, I mean, I think the kind of these sort of super spreader that I, events that we're sort of seeing right now, at least in the northeast, I think will just kind of get, you know, they're they're occurring now because they're mostly outdoor type situations. And I think a lot more of those will just kind of be shut down, basically. Are they, But most super spreaders are not outdoor events right are they not mostly no inside? again i'm talking about I, I guess the parts of the country that do actually that seem to sort of like adhere more to the social norms like around philadelphia i see you know and i'm, I'm i guess i'm seeing them maybe there's some ob observational bias here or whatever but the, the big kind of out group events or, or, or gatherings that i'm seeing are all kind of outdoors sort of hanging out in the park sort of activities and i don't think those are necessarily super spreader events because they are outdoors no, i guess my the, the, the optimist would argue that those will just stop come winter time as opposed yeah. to just moving indoors at that kind of isn't that, that kind of like saying the kids are, aren't going to have sex? I mean, they're, they're people are going to do what they're going to do, and people are going to be social to some extent. We can't extinguish that altogether. And so, yeah. the pessimist, you said the optimist view, the pessimist view, or maybe the realist view, would say all that socializing it'll go down, but it won't go down all the way. It's just going to happen indoors instead of in written house instead of written house square now. I think, I think that's entirely possible. And I think the other things that I've heard about the cold weather, this is true, apparently um, the virus spreads, every virus, every airborne virus spreads more in cold weather than it does in warm weather. And a lot of it's due to the humidity and the droplets in the air. That's one thing. Um, second, um, the one thing that I expect to drop and not a, not a good way between now, let's say in two months from now, is that most people are probably not as willing to wear masks indoors as opposed to outdoors. And so the problem is, and this is where, you know, you want to talk about, Shane, the ultimate potentially super spreader event. It takes place on the fourth week of November every year on a Thursday called Thanksgiving. And in a lot of cases, it happens when people come to visit or kids come home from school, et cetera. And 
I can imagine most people might not choose to distance from their children at a table and may not choose to wear a mask at a table. And so it gets back to uh, Kay's point, which is you have some numbers going up and some numbers going down. So you can project the total number of cases is probably going to go up. Now the question is, what's going to happen to the spread rate? What's going to happen to the mixture distribution of who's going to get it? And so, you know, it's really, you have to, this is one of those hard statistical problems because you probably have to forecast five or six different things, Mm -hmm. which are probably not uncorrelated with each other. I think a a bad assumption would be that they're uncorrelated with each other. Well, I think the same behaviors that could lead to cases going up at a rapid rate could also lead to the same behavior that makes it, given you've gotten it, you're more likely to spread it or more likely to get a serious dose of it. So I think that's why this is a really hard stat problem is that you, you have lots to predict. And I, th- well, I think the kind of spatial component of this is like, I'm particularly intrigued or, or you know, interested in, in, in how, like we haven't really seen in the US to my knowledge, really kind of a second wave in a particular location, right? I mean, almost all these kind of subsequent waves that we've, we've, we're maybe in the kind of third wave in a kind of national sense, but only because a third kind of region of the country is getting slammed right now. And so I, but, but that isn't to say that you can't have a second wave in a particular hit, a particular location. You're seeing in Paris, you know, and, and, and some, and some parts of the United Kingdom, Manchester, et cetera, that certainly there are kind of second waves hit in particular locales, but we haven't experienced that as much in the United States. And I'm kind of intrigued by that. Like could New York see a second wave or was New York slammed so hard the first time through that? Like it's, it's more unlikely to see something like a second wave. So there's two factors there broadly. One is, is there any chance that New York was hit so hard? And that they almost hit, have a herd immunity they there They almost already. have a herd immun- yeah. immunity because there's some speculation. We've talked about this you know, many weeks ago that you don't actually have to be at 50 or 60%, that between the number of people who've had it and then some people who have some other immune um, immunity to it for some other reason, you might be getting it at 20 or 30. So that's one reason you might not get a second spike. But another would be if we, what lessons were learned or conversely, what are people tired of doing? And this, this comes back to the question of modeling behavior. So Eric said we had to model, you know, five or six different um, processes. Some of those are behavioral. And this is something that we've been talking about since the beginning of this thing, that epidemiologists have historically been good at modeling the disease and they haven't focused as much at modeling the social part of it, like behavioral human responses to things. I wonder what we would do. I mean, can we just speculate for a moment on the U.S. third wave? What do we expect behaviorally? And what do we know? What do we know? Because there are these headlines that are like, people are tired of it. And there's this narrative that people are tired of it. I mean, do we even know if that's true? I I wish we had more evidence on, oh, look, there are these behavioral inputs that matter a lot. Mm -hmm. Is it the case that everybody's just chucking it now and they're really worn out? I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. We need to know things like what are people doing from a social distancing perspective? What are people doing from masks? The only, um, I agree with that. The only thing I was going to add to that is you have to be a little bit careful because let's give you, let's take an example that for our listeners, which I hope is illustrative or interesting. Let's imagine we found that the mask wearing rate was going down over time. And you might say, oh my God, that's terrible. Maybe, but here's, an, here's another possibility. I'm not saying it's true. I hope the mask wearing rate is going up over time, but let's say it was going down over time. Another possibility is you could say people have learned 
not to put themselves in situations where they need to wear masks. Yeah, right. You've got to be very careful about right. this is where I'm not worried about the tracking yeah. part conceptually. I'm worried about the inferential part from just tracking a statistic and inferring that it shows something good or bad is happening. And that, and that's kind of what has confounded all the sort of scientific inquiry we'd have th- from you know that we can kind of learn from what has already happened is that again we don't really know the kind of isolated effectiveness of something like masks because you know masks we're kind of, you know, mask kind of adherence and everything like that has been correlated with adhere, all, all kinds of adherence to other type of social distancing measures and policies out there. And, and so, you know, it, it, it's we don't have kind of that nice kind of experiment where we can kind of isolate. I mean, there, I, I, there have been kind of very small kind of experiments about mask wearing specifically and how it stops the virus. But I, th- I think that kind of like trying to kind of pull out a specific kind of thing like mask you know, a specific statistic like mask adherence in, and trying to study in isolation when it is so correlated with these other things, yeah. uh, these other kind of behaviors that are going on is, is, is something that's kind of confounding us learning from learning lessons from the past as well as kind of projecting into the future. Yep, yep, yep. So I, I think th- these, are, these are great points and they unfortunately make it very complicated to study. But I think what we'd be interested in is when, how often are people putting themselves in exposed situations or exposing others? So it's like can extensive inside contact without mask, something like that. And we just don't know. But I guess I'm sitting here a little skeptical of the narrative that everybody's tired of it. I think there's, there's, um, there's a lot of, there's forces going in the other way. I mean, there are habits. People are more accustomed to these things now. Yep. They've gotten wiser. We've learned some things. People have seen other people get sick. People have seen other people die. All these factors all move in the direction of we're probably smarter about this than we used to be. I understand we're tired of it. I understand some people are so tired of it, they're taking more chances. But but I think I bet even the chance taking is wiser than it used to be. That's my I bet point. people are taking chances with individuals I, I, I here and there. Right. As opposed I, th- to I, th- I think that's right. I think people, you know, I don't think people are kind of. I mean, we're all kind of exhausted with 2020, I think, but I think I don't think people are exhausted to the extent that they're going to really exhaustion's not driving a change of behavior. It is it's like, you know, I, I think behaviors are perhaps changing. Maybe people are taking more chances because economically they kind of are being forced to, you know, their economic There's circumstance, another, another you know, fact. they they now right. need to go back to work. They need to try and keep their small business open, et cetera. But, but one hopes at least that that is kind of, occurring kind of with at mu- as much you know the people are at least trying to be as safe as possible about that risk taking yeah the only other thing i was going to add was you know and this is where i think the role of let's call it a realistic date of a vaccine being out there like you know i know there's a lot of psychology and studies on this if someone told you right now here's the date with some certainty that a vaccine is likely to come out most people let's say it was 6 months or no 8 months no whenever it is the minute you give somebody an end date, people are like, well, I can't do this mass thing forever. But yeah. if you tell me it's only going to be another six months, you know what? I can do it. Yeah. And so what's interesting is the role of goals and setting an end date could actually have on people's behavior between now and that actual end date. Yeah. I completely agree. I think if they could, I, I don't think they can really, but if they could just sort of say like, hey, 
just behave yourselves until March 1st and then it'll all be over. I think there would be way more adherence to all this. I it's do. just it, it, trouble. We're, we're, it's more like the situation where we're at the airport and they're saying, please stick around the gate. The flight will take off in 45 minutes. And then they just keep pushing that back by another 45 minutes. Right. So actually that the worst thing you could do would be to announce something that you weren't certain of yet yeah. because, because of that exact same effect. All right. So Guys, the other major event in 2020 is the election, which also involves lots of forecasts and lots of modeling. We talked a little bit last time about what we're seeing in the models. Anything new, any news? We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. Two weeks from today is election day. Um, what has your eye, if anything, in election 2020? So I've been tracking 538 quite a bit. I mean, that's kind of where I go for both predictions and data and everything else. And, and then two things I've noticed um, number one is, um, and I remember talking about this briefly last week, is the idea of the stability of the polls. And so recognize that when someone, and, and, and even I'll call it the stability of the lead. And so what I mean by that is, you know, if someone says, here's a vote percentage for candidate A and here's candidate B, obviously I take the difference between those two numbers and that's the lead. Let's assume A is higher than B, A minus B, that's the estimate. But then Let's imagine I do a poll today, tomorrow, the next day. Well, I have a time series now of differences of A minus B, and I can look at the variance of A minus B. And what's actually been interesting to me, unlike, you know, I know how many elections I have voted in, this seems like one of the more stable set of differences that I've noticed. And I don't mean just nationally. I mean, even at the state level. So, yeah, you know, one day maybe Biden is up 0.2 more in one state and Trump is up maybe 0.2 more in another state. And by the way, I'm not even saying take A minus B since there are lots of polls being done simultaneously. 538 is doing the right thing. They're taking an average of these polls and some polls get a little more weight than others, depending on the quality, the size, et cetera. So they're doing two statistical things I like, which is averaging. Number two, they're looking at the stability of these polls over time. So to me, that's one certain thing that's caught my eye. And also the, the second thing- Before yeah, you go sure. on, that, yeah. on that one thing, is, is there any chance that polling is just so much better now and there's so much more of it now and the aggregators are so much more sophisticated that all of that leads to more stability, all else equal? In other words, had we had the current system four years ago or 20 years ago, you'd have seen more stable numbers than we saw on those, on those occasions. An yeah. alternative, an alternative explanation. I, I mean, I think there, I, I think that polling has only gotten better, you know, um, and certainly through some recent, like, you know, the, the, the 2000 in general have been a lot of cautionary tales for polling. You know, we've learned a lot about when, you know, you can't, when you can and can't infer from polls. But I think also, I mean, I think maybe part of the stability right now is just being driven by, I, I don't think we just have as many undecided voters as exactly. time around. You know, I, I mean, like, and I, I think yeah. it's a key kind of observation. That I think either you or Audie made like last week, you, you know, is that, you know, 44, a 44 per, to 40% lead is inherently higher variance than a 52 to 48% lead, right? Because some of that variance is, is, is kind of being driven by, you know, the, the, these undecided voters. And if you don't have a lot of undecided voters, you're probably going to have a lot of stability in the actual underlying vote proportion that these polls are attempting right. to capture absolutely and yeah. therefore you know the polls themselves will be a little bit more stable absolutely yeah. and that was the one thing the, the other thing that kind of um i guess caught my eye 
um, ab about the polls were just also that um, what I'll call the uniform left hypothesis, which is um, the in the national vote in 2016, Hillary Clinton won by roughly 2%, okay? Joe Biden's leading, I don't know, let's say 8%, 9% nationally. It's not a horrible approximation to say, take every state vote count in 2016 or every state percentage in 2016 for the Democratic candidate and add five or 6% to that. And that's roughly where they're polling. In other words, people wanna talk about regional differences, but for example, um, Hillary Clinton lost uh, Pennsylvania by a little under 1%. Uh, by the averages of the polls, Joe Biden's leading by about 6%. Um, basically, if you add basically 6% uniformly, the prediction errors to where the current polls are aren't that far off. And that to me is also something you don't see that often, this kind of universal lift in all states. Yep. Well, so in, I think that's an interesting heuristic and and presumably a useful one. Just want to point out that it's kind of the opposite mistake that people have made in the past, which Correct. is presuming everything is independent. And what, what we've kind of learned, and we learned it very harshly for forecasters in 2016, is that there's just a lot more dependence. And when you see Florida start coming in high, you don't say, oh, Pennsylvania will, will counterbalance it. You go, oh, <laughs> If it's correlated, yeah. that's trouble in Pennsylvania. And so, Eric, you're kind of going the other way and saying, assume perfect correlation and just spread it. I'm not saying to assume that. I'm saying. That's if, a heuristic. No, no. I'm, yeah, I'm saying if you were to use yeah. that as yeah. a heuristic, yeah, yeah. state by state level predictions yeah. would be, put it this way, it wouldn't be that far off to what the actual predictions are. However, I will say your point is right. I think um, if we all sit there two weeks from today and we see, let's say, Florida, which tends to come back earlier, because first of all, they can count mail ballots starting immediately, and they also have a lot of early voting. Um, if it comes back and it is very far off of the forecast for that state, I think people will start to question, oh, so what's going to happen in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, et cetera, just like that happened in 2016. That's right. So guys, uh, let's, let's, let's play a game we ended with last week and maybe we can next week as well, or two weeks even, we'll be right on it. The 538 poll at the moment, Tuesday afternoon, says 87% Biden. We've talked about the need to regress these things for, I would call it structural uncertainty or uncertainty that's outside the model, essentially. Um, Adi, you know, we, we, he was beating a drum we weren't listening to in 2016. Um, how much would you regress that? If you had to just kind of, lick your thumb, put it in the wind and say, ah, I don't think 87. I'm going to regress it down to what? So I've thought about that a lot since last week. And I'm, I'm just going to give you a simple answer. So I'll say what I'm going to say, the same answer I gave last week, with roughly three to one, roughly 75% to 80%. Let me say why. If you look at the betting sites, which you could argue are a different way to make forecasts based on people's financial bets, they're averaging around 63 to 65% right now for Biden. And so if you took an unweighted average of mm -hmm. the betting sites and the polls, you'd end up somewhere around 75% right now. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to stick with that number. And by the way, the betting sites over the last two months and 538 have been, again, very, very consistent. They have not moved that much over the last couple months. So that's why I'm going to average, I'm going to, you're calling it regression. That's fine. I'm going to call it averaging. I'm going to average the betting site and the polling site and come up with my estimate from that. 
Well, I, I, what I like about that is that you're giving us a reason for a number instead of just, as I suggested, licking your thumb and putting a win. Uh, and you're, and tell real quickly, what about this unweighted average thing you're doing? I mean, here we are, you're a freaking PhD in statistics, chair of the marketing department, this is Wharton Moneyball, and you want to take an unweighted average. Tell me about the wisdom of unweighted average in this situation. Well, I don't know if it's wisdom. It's more of a, an empirical phenomenon. You know, there's been, if I, if all of us on this show had a dollar for every time someone said, you don't need to run a regression. You just need to equally weight everything. Why are you bothering putting one weight on one thing and one weight on another? There's a long historical debate about just taking simple averages and their predictive power. And so I'll, I'll say it the following way. I have no prior belief about why I should trust the betting site more or 538 more, because I can make an argument for either. Therefore, given that, I'm going to take an unweighted average of the two. Whereas I'll just, I mean, I, I, I don't actually disagree with you, Eric, but I, just for counter argument, I'll, I'll, I'll take the perspective that maybe if you were kind of thinking, you know, you want to do this maybe empirically, you'd go back over past elections and see like how many, t- you know, which, which was better calibrated, the betting markets or, or, or the polling. Um, but one argument you can make for maybe putting a greater weight on the betting markets is the betting markets, at least theoretically, can take into account both the polling information as well as everything else they need to they want to take into account as far as making their bet. So if the betting market is behaving rationally, big if, but if they are, it should actually kind of to a certain extent be based on a greater pool of information Great than point. just the polling um, kind of prediction would be. You could and also say you maybe want to put more weight on that. Yeah, we also study incentives, and right, and so this is the ultimate incentive. It's easy to say what you're going to do, but when you actually have to bet money on it, you mm-hmm. could argue that's more revealing. And so, so, you know, now that you say that, I'm, I'm moving my 75% to 74.9. You've convinced me. But, but, all right, but, all right, yeah, all right. Big, big move there. But, but Shane had a pretty big caveat in there. Shane said, assuming the market's efficient. And- yeah. I mean, the, the equity markets, U.S. equity markets being efficient is very different from this prediction market being efficient. They've got caps on the bet sizes. They've got lots of little rules that make it a kind of a funny market. In fact, Eric, you talk about incentives. Um, you know, some people make bets to hedge. And I know I have friends who bet against their team in mm-hmm. high emotion situations to change yep. their experience. And so it's not 100% clear that the market is giving us a perfectly efficient signal of all that integrated information that Shane was talking about. All right. Well, I'd, I'd like to think harder about if we think some factors are outside of Nate's model, how might we regress accordingly to have a more principled reason for regressing. But for the time being, I like Eric's approach. And just to be clear, just the thing I repeated from last week too, the 538 model is using a weighted combination of the polls and also economic factors, educational Mm -hmm. factors, macro factors. I think it's like a 75-25 split. Mm -hmm. And so in some sense, this was newly added. They decided that they needed to do more statistical adjustment than just the pure polls. Right. In fact, they they have a, I think they have a third model where they have some expert judgment in there, adding, adding even a little, another factor. So they have tried to get beyond just the polls. All right, guys, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have- You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now. Been talking elections. We don't do a lot of elections, but man, here in the final weeks, it's hard not to look at those polls and here, listen to those analysts. I want to pimp again uh, the special 
podcast that 538 does called Model Talk. They do it every Friday, at least the last few weeks, every Friday. Model Talk. If you want some real detail, Wharton Moneyball-like detail on forecasting the election, that's a good place to get it. That's 538's podcast. Model Talk. Gentlemen, uh, there are other sports and there's been a lot of football and I feel like we're kind of getting into the meat of the season now. We're seeing some teams kind of really rise and look clearly better. We're seeing some teams look clearly worse. I'm curious your reactions as you look around the NFL. Shane, Eric, what do you got? Well, I mean, I, I you know, we can talk about the Patriots in a few, but I actually do want to talk about the Buccaneers a little bit more because I I was just so shocked by what the last two games of the watching the last two games the Buccaneers have played that Thursday night game against Chicago and then this one uh, the Sunday uh, one against uh, Green Bay, just the amount of like they're just two different teams. I mean, it couldn't have been a more kind of high variant. There couldn't have been more variance in their performance from like you know 120 yards worth of penalties to zero penalties. Zero. And I just kind of, you know, I, you know, obviously one could just say, oh, okay, the Buccaneers are a high variance team. This is just kind of how it goes with them. One could start convincing themselves, though, that maybe this actual last performance against Green Bay is more kind of a, you know, could be a change point where they actually are clicking and we're going to see more consistently good performance in the future. So, Eric, I was kind of interested in kind of your perspective. Like, what what do you believe? Well, so first, let's just, the way I look at the first six games, the first thing that concerned me when they lost in week one was, yes, lots of penalties. But, you know, all of a sudden, I hate to say it, but a loss to the um, Saints on the road, not looking so bad. That's not a bad loss by anybody's definition. I mean, the Saints have won more games probably in the NFL over the last four seasons than any team. They haven't won a Super Bowl, but they've won lots of games. You say, oh, my God, they lost to the Bears. Well, the Bears are 5-1. and one. And the Bears, I, I understand they may be the worst five and one team we've ever seen, but you know, the Bears, it I mean, plus way, I think at the end of the season, that's not going to be a horrible loss either. All of a sudden now, you know, you say, Well, who'd they beat? Well, they beat the Packers 38 to 10, who are undefeated. So that's obviously an impressive win. You say, Well, they beat the they beat the Broncos. What's that worth? Well, I don't know. The Broncos just went into Foxborough, into Foxborough, and beat the Patriots. So maybe that they say, oh, they beat the Panthers. What's that worth? Oh, well, the Panthers don't look to be that bad a team now either. And he said, well, they beat the Chargers. I don't know. I mean, if Justin Herbert had a little more. So I'm saying you could make up stories, but I mean, yeah. every team they've beaten. I mean, they've beaten above 500 teams now. The teams they've lost to are both above 500. I'm starting to, you know, I'm starting to believe a lot more. So Massey Peabody believes we have them up to number five. You know, we had them at five a few weeks ago, but they're back up there now. 3.33 rank jump from last week. We make them um, right up there, right between KC and San Francisco. So pretty strong from the analytics side of things. I just think that the, the result was just astounding. And it just reminds you how one unexpected football can be in the NFL. Cause these teams are roughly similar to each other. And then two, especially early in the year, you know, we just get too certain about teams early in the season and probably especially so this year. Um, and maybe especially so with teams with new quarterbacks, you know, so there's a lot, there's a, there's probably a lot that might explain the kind of variance. And we just tend to forget how high variance these things are. To me, another thing that jumped out over the weekend, another team that's like, Oh my God, they may be really good 
is the Steelers. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, they did. They, they're one of the undefeateds coming into the season. They go up against a division rival, a team that people think might be back. They were going to be back. And then my gosh, they just did a number on the Browns. I mean, what do you guys make of the Steelers? Yeah. I mean, I, it's kind of similarly impressive, I think, you know, and in part, I think it's impressive too. Like, you know, I, if Tampa Bay had beat Green Bay in like some kind of crazy shootout at the end, I mean, I would have enjoyed that, but you know, wouldn't have taken uh, taken as much of an impressive feeling. Wait, similar similar to the Steelers, Browns, if they kind of had this shootout, but I mean, just an absolute domination of the like lines on both sides of the ball in both those games. And you know, I mean, the Steelers just look like I mean, they look like they have an unbeatable defense right now and i mean that defense probably can be beat and will be at some point but it's their their defense looks like the best in the league perhaps if you see funny you say that because brian burke if you remember brian at espn did some work in the offseason with their next generation stats and 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 automated this model that evaluates every lineman or or you know person playing either rushing the passer or defending the rush and they evaluate every every attempt to block as either a success or, or a failure as on the offensive side and every attempt to defeat a block as success or failure on the defensive side. And he rates each team according to those numbers each week of the season. And through the season, Pittsburgh stands out. They're just head and shoulders above everyone else because they're near the top on both those dimensions. Very, very strong on both on, on the defensive pass block de- um, defeats and the rush block defeats. And, and, you know, I, I haven't even watched that much of them. And when I do, I usually get awed by the offense more than anything because they're so much fun to watch. But that jump, that, that stat in Brian's evaluation just really jumps out at you. Yeah, the, I, I like the comparison. You could make an interesting comparison between the Steelers and the Bucks in the following sense. Both of them last year actually had very good defenses too. You could make an argument, the Steelers, you can almost see their receivers are like, oh my God. I don't have an eighth string quarterback yeah. throw me the ball. It's Big Ben. Like we're actually going to score points. Yeah, they 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 were like they were sniffing at the playoffs even last they season were. with absolutely like oh, awful quarterback. Argument. So. I mean, the Bucks went seven and nine last year with a quarterback that threw thirty picks. And let me just tell you, Tom <laughs> Brady. You, I mean, he's not the Tom Brady of ten years ago. We all agree to that. But I'll tell you what he does have. He has fourteen touchdowns right now and four picks. 14 touchdowns and four picks. Not so bad, right? I understand two of them have been pick sixes. Those haven't helped too much. Um, I think both the Buccaneers and the Steelers are like, we have an offense here now that can go with our defense, and our offense is not going to lose us the game. Last last year, both of these teams, you're like, I hope our defense wins us this game because there's no way the offense is winning us this game. And that's kind of how I feel about the Patriots now, right? (laughs) Right? Because the Patriots have a look of a team where the defense can certainly keep them in the game and definitely did keep them in that game against Denver. Denver had to kick six field goals, but you know, the offense was doing nothing. So it's partly also Shane, when I watched that game, I watched a fair amount of that game. You know, it wasn't so much that it was Cam Newton also. And this is maybe one of the reasons also Brady thought about leaving the Patriots besides maybe his relationship with Belichick at Sour, who knows, who the hell is he throwing the ball to? Yeah. This is why, you know, maybe Tom Brady for last year's performance should get even more credit because who the hell, who are their receivers? Now compare it. He's yeah. got Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Gronk. He's got, I mean, he's got Sean McCoy. I mean, he's got receivers all over the yeah. field now. And so he might've also been thinking, well, there's, there's, the Patriots haven't done anything to improve the receiving core. 
I'm never going to have a great season with this team. Yeah. No, and I mean, they have tried things. They just have kind of failed. I mean, you know, I think, you know, the, 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 they really seem to have missed their dra- – that, that Enkeel Harry does not look like it was a hit as far as drafting goes. And, you know, Edelman, obviously, they've been leaning on that guy for a few years too long, as it turns out. He certainly looks uh, his age at this point. So, yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. And, I mean, I also think it's exacerbated. And there's, there's some relief maybe coming in the sense it's exacerbated by kind of – covid slash real injuries to the offensive line i think both the patriots and cowboys are kind of in a bucket together right now is looking kind of awful i mean the cowboys especially look awful but um but i think a lot of that is is, is you know their their offensive lines have just been absolutely decimated and and no. so you know cam cam had a bad game but cam did not have a lot of time to have a good game well, they're saying the same thing about about Rogers. One of the reasons that that um, Tampa did so well against him is that they put pressure on him that he hasn't seen so much. But you mentioned the Cowboys. Let's jump to the other end of the spectrum. We've been talking about the teams we've been most impressed with. That had to be one of the most horrifying um, ex- brutal observations of the season. The season. I watched it last night with a Cowboys fan, and it's 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 hard to, it's hard to keep somebody uplifted. It's hard to keep somebody you know when watching a game like that. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. If you're the Cowboys, do you say, you say to yourself, look, we stink. We know we stink. But we're in the stinkiest division, and we lead the division yeah. two and four. And so, yeah. you know what? We're not going to stink forever. You know, Andy Dalton doesn't totally stink. He's an <laughs> at- Let me just say the following. If you won a Super Bowl with Andy Dalton, he would not be the worst quarterback ever to win the Super Bowl. How about the that? And yeah. so – He'd be in the bottom third. I didn't say he. I just said I don't think though he'd be the worst. <laughs> no, I I agree. That's probably right. All That's I'm commenting right. on is, let, let me ask. Let me, let's project forward. We we like statistical questions. Let's imagine the Cowboys win that division, which means, and let's even imagine they win it at six and ten. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Well, have we had that happen before? What's the worst record? Seven for and nine. Seven and nine is the worst that's ever made the yeah, play. Didn't, didn't this happen? Matter of fact. Wasn't it the Eagles? I mean, am I remembering wrong that the big re- the big result, or maybe it was Seattle? I just don't remember which of the two was that a team was seven and nine and had a home playoff game. Yeah, I think won Seattle one year one made the playoffs with said seven and nine. Okay. Uh, somebody ran somebody ran a simulation a couple weeks ago that the Eagles could win the technically win the division. There's a scenario where they could win the division at like four eleven and one. technically (laughs) Technically. i mean it's not it's not a highly likely but i mean yeah i I, it is highly likely that six or seven wins could take that division no but here's my this was my question let's suppose the cowboys win the division let's make it up by the way for them to be seven and nine they have to go five and five the rest of the season there's no evidence that they are at this point but i mean they're two and four right now but all right so let's say they go five and five not impossible let's say they win the division at seven and nine Let's imagine as the four seed, they host, let's even play a worst case scenario. For me, they host the 11 and five Buccaneers. The Buccaneers are the five seed because the Saints win the division. Okay. (laughs) Who would you favor in that? Of course they'd be. uh, Whoever wins the NFC, I I can't predict who's going to win the NFC East, but whoever wins the NFC East, I am going to definitely predict is going to be um an underdog home team but by how much this is my question that was my point yeah they're going to be an underdog but it's not like you would say 
they have a 10% chance of winning that game. They might have a 40% chance. Oh, of- yeah, yeah. No, and I mean, I'm not going to predict a point. point spread at this point because, you know, it would I mean, depend on I, how they got there. I mean, maybe they roll off five sure. straight impressive victories at the end of the season. Well, it's kind of hard to see now, but it could happen. If the Cowboys were to play Tampa Bay right now yeah. in, in Dallas, how much would Tampa Bay be favored by if the game well, was right now? Massey Peabody, and this is, I mean, this is the thing about our rankings. We, they should be unbiased predictors of future rankings. And I mean, so we know they're going to move around, but they're, they are our best prediction of what their rankings will be in the future. Um, and on a neutral field would make the Bucks an 8.6 point favorite. And so it depends on what you're going to do with home field. I think Rufus started the season going, you know, like for some fraction of home field 0.8 or something. So make it, you know, make it two, just be, let's be conserving him two points. You're still talking about around a touchdown favorite for a road playoff team. It's a little surprising. It's still a pretty big number. At least that's what massive Peabody has. Hmm. But, but Shane has a good point. Shane's like, if, if you're going to roll off, if you're going to be 500 from now on and you're two and four now, and you've looked like dog on Monday night football, then you're probably going to end up with a little bit higher number. But, but let's say the same thing about Tampa. I mean, they, they you know, if they keep on going the way they're going, they're going to end up at a higher number. So I, I, I think it, I, I'm going to say seven-point dog right now if, if that beautiful scenario came to pass. And I think you should be happy about it, Eric. Not a nightmare. That should be the best case first-round game. What do you mean? You. Why do I? No, I don't want that. I, I want us to be the number one seed, which remember well, this yeah. year. That well, okay, yeah, no, no, that's right. But I mean. Sure, of course you want the one. You know, but I, I almost do feel like, I mean, obviously the one seed is preferred, but I might – I might prefer the fifth seed, if not the one seed after that, right? Well, why wouldn't you, Shane, why wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. In fact, if you want to talk about a massive advantage this year to being the one, imagine you're the one, you got to buy, and then you play the winner of the four or five matchup, which may be the Cowboys or the whoever. It, I mean, right. you want to talk about, you're basically in the <laughs> NFC, you're almost in the yeah, NFC championship good. game. That's solid. Yeah. Well, guys, I have to say that, you know, it's weird to see the Cowboys doing this badly. We're, we're accustomed to being, especially as Cowboy fans or being from Texas, I have lots of friends and family that are Cowboy fans. You're accustomed to being frustrated with the Cowboys. I mean, yeah. Jerry Jones is basically a 500 owner. Jason Garrett was a 500 coach. And it's just, you know, there's it's just this perpetual mediocrity. But that makes this novel. This two and four being down as bad as they were last night against the Cards, that feels like new territory. And we can put some of it on Dak being out, but it's not just Dak being out. It's well, just- it's injuries. I mean, they're, they're, they literally lost their last starter from the offensive line last night. Was Zach Martin was injured, and he was the fifth of five. Yeah. You know, they have no none of their regular starters in at the offensive line now, yeah. um, and it shows. And of course, Dak is Dak to Andy Dalton is a, a, an obvious downgrade. Yeah, how many How many of those offensive linemen were defending Kyler Murray last night? Oh, well, no, no, no. The defense and, and no, no, no. And they're, I think the real surprising part is how bad their defense appears to be, you know, and it, you, it, even last season. And I, you know, I mean, I'm not making excuses for them at all, though I guess I have already mentioned the injuries, but I think it's interesting to observe that they are, uh, they've, you know, both new head coach and new defensive coordinator came in this year of all years. This is perhaps a bad year to kind of have that kind of coaching transition. Well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you, since you brought up Dak, and I, this is something I put in our rundown. I, we didn't quite get to it last week, but could I know you looked at, you guys have looked at this, Kate. How much in terms of expected wins would you lower the Cowboys 
by having Andy Dalton versus Dak. And, and this is the way I've thought about it, but please correct me if I'm wrong. Let's imagine an elite quarterback. The way I do the math, and I may have the numbers wrong, is first I'm going to figure out how much it affects the number of points per game. Like maybe it's a four-point swing. Like instead of the Cowboys being a three-point underdog to a team, they're a seven-point underdog. Then I'm going to change that to a difference in win percentage. And then I'm going to add it up over the number of games that they have left. So I think most people would overestimate. They'd say, oh my God, Prescott's worth four more wins for the Cowboys over the, the over uh, Andy Dalton. That's got to be a way overestimate, right? Oh yeah. Um, you no, know, I can't take you all the way down that math because we haven't been running Sims every week yet, but I can tell you roughly how much we dropped their power ranking. It's around three points. And, and how much is that in terms of a win probability? Isn't that, could that be more than, I mean, it depends where you are on the scale, but it can't be more than 10%, which would mean over the remaining 10 games, maybe it's one win. I think it's probably more than 10%, but um, it's not that much more than 10%. So Even if it's I, 20%, 15, yeah. 20%. Okay, so we're talking about a two-win difference. So, you know, if you were projecting them to be maybe seven and nine, maybe it would be nine and seven with Dak. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I strongly agree with your general intuition here that people overreact to the loss of any one player, and especially to non-quarterbacks, because quarterbacks are obviously the most important player. But in general, we see people, and even markets, we believe, overreacting to individual injuries. And especially, I mean, like, certainly it did not look like it last night. But Andy, you know, before last night, we probably would have said that the Cowboys have probably the best, you know, top three or four best kind of backup situations of all the teams in the NFL, right? I mean, can, I, you know, again, last it's hard to forget about la- what happened last night. But, you know, can you, who, who are the backups out there that are better than Andy Dalton? Well, so an interesting question, not a question, a rumor that, and this is totally on the rumor category, but Sam Darnold, people are talking about um, Cowboys trading for Sam Darnold. Uh, You know, the Jets arguably should just be packing packing up and rebuilding at this point, so why not? Rebuilding around Joe Flacco, their current starter, I assume you mean. I'm not saying they have their franchise quarterback, (laughs) but they might be willing to part with their last attempt at a franchise. Yes, that's right. My God, you know, I've been a fan of Sam That would be spicy. No, I mean, I would love to see Sam Darnold, like, unshackled from that terrible situation. I mean, the the jury is definitely still out on him, and at this point, maybe odds are roughly against him, but it can't be any worse than it has been no, I mean, my, I, I think if we continue the sort of Jet narrative of being a Jets fan being truly the heart of darkness, Darnold goes, eventually makes it to the Patriots and wins <laughs> like a few Super Bowls with them, right? Wouldn't that be fun? Well, you know, it'd be painful to see him do well anywhere else because I'm sure the Jets fans like to blame him, but um, especially a division rival, that would be rich to say the least. Um, all right, fellas, anything else around the NFL? Yeah, your- so... You know, um, this is something, again, I put in our rundown. Um, Riverboat Ron goes for it again. Yeah. So just to recap for all of our fans out there, um, the Giants were ahead of the Redskins with about 30 seconds left in the game, 20 to 13. Uh, The Redskins, where Ron Rivera is the coach, uh, scored a touchdown, 20 to 19. Ron Rivera goes for two to win the game. And they didn't make it. and uh, the reason, you know, he's been known to do this many, many times. Matter of fact, I think I've told you, I mean, I only jokingly say, as everyone remembers, two years ago in my Eliminator League, I was undefeated. There were 800 teams that started. There were only 20 of us left that were undefeated. It was week 15. 
Ron Rivera with the Panthers goes for two in the same situation. They don't make it. I took the Panthers and, you know, I always joke that was a $100,000 decision by Ron Rivera for me, but I want to, there's a reason I'm bringing this up. I want to, besides the $100,000, I want to contrast that with the Titans who also scored a touchdown with five seconds left on the clock and Mike Vrabel did not go for it and kicked the extra point and they won in overtime. So it started to make me think a couple things. One is you could say, well, the Titans are in the playoff hunt. The Redskins aren't. Actually, that's not true. The Redskins had won the game. They'd have two wins and they'd be leading the division. Oh yeah, no, nobody in the NFC East is going to be out of the playoff hunt, no. I so think, until I the think, last day. Yeah, but now I started to think, Shane, from a statistical point of view, if you think you're not the better team, like you're not going to have a 50-50 chance in yeah. overtime. This is your chance. You're at the two-yard line. You just have to score from there. If you think you're – I'm not saying literally think, but if you think, look, the Giants are at least as good as we are, we should try to win it now. The yeah. Titans might say, we're the better team. We go to overtime. We're going to win this game because we're the better team. No, and, and it's a great it's a great point. I mean, I, I think I think probably the decision making there is probably more micro than like kind of like an overall valuation that oh we're the worst because I mean Giants versus Redskins they're not necessarily even the worst team, um, but. Um, I think it's more to do with like kind of the personnel, like how much confidence you have in your specific team's ability to like, you, you know, do that three, you know, that do that two point conversion. We have like Derek Henry in your backfield. You're probably a lot more kind of, yeah, but why you know, didn't they go for it then? They no, no, I, 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 no, I mean, Vrabel had a lot of kind of interesting sort of coaching moves in that game that were fast. I mean, the two point conversion, his decision on the two point conversion when he has Derek Henry, in the backfield kind of surprised me to be honest. Um, it worked out for them, obviously. Um, my, my that he took that uh, Texans, to his intentional penalties. The Texans couldn't stop the Titans, and in fact, that that informs the reason. Yeah, why. though I mean, you know, the, the the Titans were struggling to stop the Texans too. So I mean, you are betting on a coin flip there. But I, I really like what Eric's saying about this. I mean, I, I forget the analytics, mm-hmm. you know, revolution. The very first question you ask in these in all these situations, and it happens in college football as well you know, do you want more reps or do you want fewer reps? And if there are, if there's a big disparity in the quality of the teams yeah. or over the course of the game, some disparity has emerged, then you want to be the, t- if, if you're the team that's better, you want to, you want to, you want more reps. You don't yeah. need to shorten the game. No. If and I, the first I team, you want to shorten the game. You want to increase variance. And if you can put the game away from the three yard line on a 50, 50 play, my God, most folks are going to take that. Yeah, no, and I, and I mean, it, it has that exact logic, I think, has a lot of bearing on uh, the, the game. I think it was a week ago, the Viking Seahawks game, I think it was. I, it wasn't a two-point conversion, but I think Mike Zimmer went for it on fourth and something, fourth and three, fourth and four, or something like that near the end of the game. And he, if they had got it, it would have sealed the game. It would have basically Correct. ended it, won the game for the Vikings. He did not get it. Seattle marched down and ended up winning the game. But I think that you could certainly argue was a good move. Uh, you know, I kind of agreed with it, even given the results, in part because, you know, the Vikings are not the better team in that case, certainly. And, you know, they if they if they had a chance to win the game right out right there, take it. I was just thankful that Riverboat Ron's consistent. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think it's fun to see a little more variance on these two-point decisions, and it's actually a, it's it's a it's a it's something that can be considered, and people make choices in both directions. We just didn't see as much of that in past years. It's much more in play now, which makes it more interesting for sure. Guys, we're down to just the last minute or so, and which is all the time we can allocate to college football. Funny, I'm less interested these days. 
um, what did you pay attention to? Did you see the Alabama-Georgia game? Shades of Alabama past. Not as interesting as we thought it would be. Anything else in college football jump out at you? Well, I mean, you know, uh, I think North Carolina losing was a big deal. I think that was surprising to a lot of people. And I think it looks like Clemson is really good. I'm still, I'm going to stick with Clemson and Alabama until I see any evidence otherwise. Man, that, that that Clemson score, I looked at it halftime and it felt like, like the, the old, the old days of college football before they had scholarship limits. And, you know, Texas would go play rice with 125 varsity athletes, scholarship athletes. And they'd win by, you know, six. My, my 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 wife, who doesn't pay much attention to football at all, walked into the walked into the room while I was watching and saw the halftime. She's like, "That's just mean." <laughs> yeah, that's exactly that was her reaction. That just felt. seems mean. That's exactly exactly the way it felt. All right, guys, that has been the second quarter. We still have two quarters to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. A special virtual edition coming to you via Zoom. Cade Massey hosting with my longtime buddies and collaborators. Faculty colleagues, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner will be back. We have been talking football. There are other sports, notably, guys, the World Series is set. Any comments, thoughts on those championship series? One went the way of the underdog, one did not. It was they were they're exciting. Game sevens, two game sevens. Good fun. What did you guys make of it? Well, I mean, let's start with the American League. I mean, the Rays were up three to nothing. The Astros are the only the second team to ever force a game seven. Forget win, force a game seven. Unfortunately, the other one was the 2004 Red Sox, who actually won that game seven. Um, and I then I remember that. Yeah, well, I remember <laughs> it well, unfortunately. And they made a movie about it. It's, it's called Fever Pitch. Um, and then in uh, the Dodgers were down three one, and they came back and won the last three games. And so um, it was obviously very exciting. Um, it went to chalk in the sense of the Rays were 40 and 20 this year. So they were the best team in the AL. I think the Dodgers were 43 and 17, which was the best team in the NL. So, I mean, it didn't, it, you know, by a, just a hair. So let's not put too much in it because it could have been the Astros at 29 and 31. Yeah. Were in the well, world. So, well, let's talk about that because I, my sense of you guys being American league guys and being with the Yankees and expecting to advance further than you did. My sense is that you would have rather played the Rays than the Astros that people thought that the Astros might've been the better team by the end of the season, despite the difference in record. Did I just have that wrong. Maybe I just had that wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you can answer as a Yankees fan. I mean, the Red Sox rather. If, if, if I, I think I probably would have rather played the Astros just because the Rays were have, have looked excellent all season, essentially. I mean, I do think the Astros were playing, you know, less than their true underlying ability, and that was kind of starting to correct itself by the end of the season, and they had a lot of momentum with them. But I, 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 I think it really – I probably would have – I mean, the Rays pitching, not, nothing scares me more than bullpen and, and start a bullpen in like the postseason. And it's, you know, the Rays had that kind of thing that the Yankees used to have where you better hope they don't get a lead because then it's over. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I, I would agree with that. Um, I would have, it's a Yankee fan, despite our recent losses to the Astros in the playoffs, um, I would have rather played the Astros this year. And a lot of it, as, as uh, Shane said, it was because of the pitching. I mean, um, I'm very surprised. Well, I know the answer to this. So um, the Rays, I guess, number one or number two starter, uh, Glasnow, 
is pitching tonight against Kershaw. Okay. What do you think the betting line is? Forget the series for tonight's game. So it's Glasnow versus Kershaw. And you, by the way, just to note, it's probably both teams number two because Snell is the is the Rays number one, and of course this year Bueller has yeah. been the Dodgers number one. So let's suppose it's the number two starter for both. Look, I'm a Rube coming at it from a distance, not knowing anything, but my sense is that the market loves the Dodgers, and um, and so I would expect the I would expect the game odds to be maybe a little north and Kershaw such a big name. Of course he's had postseason postseason difficulties still between the Dodgers and Kershaw. I would expect the game probabilities to be north of 60% in favor of the Dodgers. Maybe, maybe the low sixties. No, you're right. It's, I was shocked by this man. It's at least the last time I looked, it was Dodgers minus 170. Wow. It's basically, you know, that's getting right up there between, you know, if it was minus 180, you'd be exact or right. You'd be right there. So you're basically in the low 60s, which surprised me a little bit. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't put it higher than 60%, certainly. I'd be down like maybe 55, 45, or even well, less. I, I see them very balanced, actually. Minus 150 would be yeah. 60%. And so, and, you know, we're obviously beyond that. Um, it seemed pretty high to me. And then you brought up an interesting question, Kate. Do you put any weight whatsoever? on Clayton Kershaw's 11 and 12 postseason record. And let me just say in every series, I posted this on uh, our Twitter handle at W Moneyball. Um, his ERA has gotten worse in his career in every series as the year has gone on, meaning his division round, LCS round, world series, I guess, play in games, whatever his it's gotten monotonically worse. Now you could make an argument. It's the pressure who knows, you could make an argument he's more fatigued. Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't have as good a stuff. Um, any, you guys put any weight on Kershaw's postseason troubles, 11 and 12, uh, worse. He's got an ERA in the World Series of over five. Any weight on that at all? I, I mean, so, I, I, I'd like to take it into account, but all it says to me, at least, is just high variance. Just jack up the, like, he just seems like he's a very high variance performer in the playoffs. And so that puts extra variance. You know, that would that would shrink any kind of Dodger percentage down towards 50% just based on that. But I don't think I, I you know, I, I don't think I I would not project necessarily that he would perform poorly in, in, in game one because of that. Let me let me ask the, again the outsider question. I want to go base rates here and just ask, what do we know about the predictive qualities of postseason record pitchers postseason record so in general we've got enough history some you know guys mostly don't get a lot of postseason starts but some have when we've seen guys with a lot of postseason starts does their postseason record add any predictive signal to their overall record overall i think no like if you did that kind of overall baseball players i I doubt there'd be any predictive value to it all like what, what you're basically asking is like you know do do what would i predict something beyond their kind of yeah. overall career norms yeah like some extra postseason bump in one direction or another based on their previous okay, postseason so I, I i don't think i could probably think of a subset of you know one or two pitchers where that i would but in general <laughs> okay but no. that's the game that's the game yeah. then so do you drop kershaw's not one kershaw of those pitchers. With the i don't think or do, you, or do you carve him out as an exception because well kershaw's been all over his career norms in the postseason so no i wouldn't game. but this is the thing is like there is this tragic story being told out there and it's easy to get pulled into. Yeah. And, and, and one could, because one could imagine, because you have yeah. a mechanism and the narrative, a really compelling narrative needs yeah. a mechanism. That's he's in his own head now. Yeah. And he's even fessed up to it in postseason, you know, 
press yeah. conferences. But so let me just say, I'm going to go down. This is great. We're going to play it out tonight. This will go live tomorrow after just one more wrong prediction the day before it happens. I'm going to go straight statistician, base rates. And I do, I think you'll have a fine outing and, and I'm going to go with a long-term record and I'm going to short the narrative. There's a real clear narrative here. I'm, I'm short. Yeah. And I, I, I think I would short the narrative too. I mean, you know, cause those narratives can change and like, you know, one or two, I mean, Dave, we used to talk this way about David price until, until it wasn't that way, you know, yeah. and, and, and we used to talk that way about a rod until it wasn't that way. Well, here's the way I think the narrative could play out in actual, the actual game. So just so you know, the last outing that Kershaw pitched, the Dodgers lost the game. It was actually to put him down 3-1 in the Braves series. But his first five innings, by the way, he pitched shutout ball. Yeah, his manager right. chose exactly. to bring him out for the sixth inning. The reason I'm saying this could play out, I could easily imagine if it's tie game or maybe Dodgers are up 1-0, 2-0, whatever the score is, I can imagine them saying, we're, no, we're not going to let you come out for the sixth inning here. If you give us five great innings – We'll yeah. take that from the great Kershaw. And, and you know what? Mm-hmm. Whether it's to fix his head, whether it's we have some evidence that he tends to tire as the game goes yeah. on, I think that could play in the actual coaching decision of the manager. Mm-hmm. No, and you just wish – I mean, I, I, I just – you know, I think it would be even more obvious if the Dodgers had the Rays bullpen. Very true. As, you, you know, that, that, but, uh, you know, I, I do sort of thing like, you know, if this does kind of come down to a battle of the bullpens, I think the Rays kind of have the advantage there. That said, I, I agree. I, I think the worst mistake Roberts can make in this World Series in general is riding his starters too much. Guys, what do you make of, of ending up with the top seeds out of both leagues, especially in a year where we had, you know, what do we have, twice as many playoff teams as usual? It's, it's, if all years you wouldn't have expected it to happen here, right? Yeah. Um, just just the way it happens. We talk so much about how noisy baseball is, and Audi reminds us, well, that's why we play a series. It's not just knockout rounds. But you know, I guess it's just going to happen sometimes. But we we get we we you know, but consider what happened in basketball, where we're always saying it's chalk, and we had this very unexpected matchup over there, compared to what happened in baseball, where we're saying it's always just so messy. It's it's um it's it's poetic, I suppose, that they would have one versus one. Should be a fun yeah, series. I don't. I, I I do think it's kind of. I think it's kind of ironic, though. I do think it's basically random. I I think it's kind of ironic that this season of all seasons went kind of chalk in in, in that sense. Uh, but um, we were a couple of pitches away, though. Yeah. No. I mean, exactly. I mean, in both in both series, it easily could have gone the other way. Exactly. That's right. In both that's, series, that's that's the, probably the most important yeah. point. I mean, we make sense of these things after the fact, and it and it really, really didn't have to turn out that way. Um, all right, so around the world of sports, we had a new winner in golf. Eric, what's the story on this guy? So I've heard of him. I mean, in fact, I, I probably have heard of all top 150 golfers in the world. But Jason Concrack is um, he's always been one of those good golfers. I mean, the guy's been on tour for 10 years. Um, he plays lots of tournaments. He, you know, matter of fact, I've seen, I know the data because he just won his first tournament. He's played 233 tournaments in 10 years. Now, by the way, just to let you know, that's a lot of tournaments. That means yeah. he's playing 20 plus tournaments every year. He won his first tournament after 10 years and 233 starts. And then uh, as you guys have seen the rundown, I asked, I hope a provocative question, but I'm not sure I have an answer to. What's the expected waiting time now till his second win? Now, we know it's been 233 starts. So do we expect another 233 starts? Do we make a narrative 
that, oh, we have to um, upgrade his probability because now that he's 1-1, the conditional probability of winning, given he's 1-1, must be much lower than one out of 233. So it's got to be much lower now or much higher than that probability of winning. And so how, what would you, how would you build an expectation for this? So it's a, I think it's a lovely question. Uh, we know that there's a fair bit of non-stationarity in golf and that recency matters. I think of it as a sport where recency matters about as much as anything, more than any other sport. Agreed. Golfers yeah. do seem to kind of regime change. Um, and so I, certainly in the near future, I think you'd expect him to play at a higher level just based on that's, that's how the models work. I don't know what he's done in the 10 weeks prior to this week. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, a related question. The psychological question is whether it matters to actually win. Yeah. And maybe does it matter to win after so many years of not winning? And I think, you know, the golfers, I'm sure that the golf door is that it does. It's, it's an empirical question. It'd be, lo- it'd be lovely to know the answer to that um, just historically. But you're, you're, the, the, the simple thing to do, Eric, is what? Is you stay with a pretty low probability, one out of 200, one out of 150. And then you ask, if it's one out of 150, how many tournaments does he need to play before we actually expect to see another win? And it's going to be a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if we assume it's just a coin flipping process with independent probabilities, the expectation is one over the rate. Yeah. So if he's got a one out of 200, we would expect it to take 200 more tournaments for him in expectation for mm-hmm. him to win the next one. Um, my guess would be it's probably a lot higher than that for no, no other reason than the following. Um, now, because he's won, he gets into every tournament. And so, and he doesn't have to qualify. So, even then tournaments only have like 125 entrants. So even if it's uniform over the number of entrants, he certain his probability would go up just by the fact that he gets to play more tournaments and he doesn't have to qualify. He's automatically in the tournaments. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think the effect of winning is that big. I think you pointed out, Kate, I have to, I should have looked it up. How did, how has he performed over the last 20 tournaments compared to the 213 before then? And if the answer is, He's got a lot of top tens and he just happened to win this one. Then my estimate would go a lot, could go way up. Yeah. And I mean, it's obviously you can empirically check it, but like, you know, you, you could, I mean, I think the mechanistic argument Cade was making is that, I mean, golf is mechanically a very difficult sport and it, you know, you kind of, I think are you kind of, kind of can get mechanically in the zone or not. And so maybe this is kind of, he's kind of jumped up and so like he is currently playing kind of like a top 50 golfer instead of the usual top 200 golfer that he is but i mean it would be worth checking i kind of i have a question how what are what are his career what what here's his his... five tournaments he came in first he won the week before that he played the shriners he missed the cut although he did shoot 268 so there's nothing wrong with that then he was tied for 17 apparently apparently there is something wrong well all right wasn't good enough for the cut is three turns before that tied for 17th tied for sixth tied for 13th okay the question i the, the, this kind of only slightly related question what are what are his career earnings i've always been curious about like if you're a professional golfer but you're not Let's really guess. a don't, winner don't, don't don't tell us eric don't look have you looked i have not looked what do we think this guy 10 years first 10 victory. years never won a tournament but he's a professional golfer for 10 years how much he's, money he's can you make 230 tournaments I mean, I really, really don't know, but I'm going to say a lot of money. I'm going to say, I don't know, four or five million dollars. Yeah, I was kind of thinking like a couple million. Yeah. All right. It's the same kind of 
ballpark. Now, I, I now know the number, but I, I'll, I'll be honest. I'll tell you what I would have guessed. I would, <laughs> I know, I, I, I'm honest. I would have guessed $11 million. A million a year. Roughly a million a year to be, to be a tour professional every 10 years. Okay. Turns out, okay. by the way, the number's almost 15 million. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah. So that's good caliber. That's good to know. The guys that are just kind of slogging it through are still making I've always money. thought being a professional golfer was probably the best gig of all professional athletes, I have to say. F- financially, financially. By the way, just to show you, actually, this is this website I'm on. Actually, it's PGA Tours website. Um, in 2019... He had a second, a sixth, and a seventh. In 2018, he had a third, a seventh, and an eighth. In 2017, he had a fourth, a 15th, and a 16th. So it's not like he's never been in a top 10. Like yeah. he's had probably 10 top 10s over the last three or four well, years. That's where a lot of those earnings are coming from as yeah. well. Not just the earnings, but you know, we may not be waiting 233 more tournaments. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, good. All right, guys, let's look at the weekend slate in football. And um, let's start with college because we have the Big Ten coming on board. Um, Pac-12 just a couple of weeks away still. But we have Big Ten football for the first time all season. And it was obviously in question in the summer. So the slate is expanding. When you look down that slate, any any particular games catch your eye? I know it's not Texas Baylor. What is interesting this coming weekend? Hmm. Well, um, I asked you a couple of weeks ago if like an Oklahoma state could make the, you know, undefeated Oklahoma state could make the playoffs and they are playing Iowa state, which may end up being the highest ranked team. They end up playing all season. Um, unless, well, this, yeah, yeah. Oklahoma is going to make a run for it before it's all over. I suspect. I mean, they, they were off after beating Texas. We'll see what Oklahoma looks like, but you're right. Iowa state has had a solid season so far, if not exactly a one less record. That's a solid game. Oklahoma State right now, the highest ranked Big 12 team. Good, good call, Eric. That'll be fun to pay attention to. And then, I'm of course, short. you know, I'm SMU Cincinnati. SMU Cincinnati. Well, well, you know, former Longhorn Shane Bouchel, uh, quarterback transfer, he's been having a great career at SMU, and it's fun to see SMU be good again. Um, Michigan-Minnesota, kind of an interesting Big 10 matchup. Is that I something we can started more interesting than that, but sure. I mean, why not? Who does Nebraska drew somebody really? No, Nebraska is Ohio state. So if you're more, maybe yeah. more interested in that. Yeah. I think people are excited to see Ohio state play. They're one team that we think can probably go, if not toe to toe, at least, um, at least better than Georgia looked against an Alabama or a Clemson, if they live up to expectations. And so how they look will be pretty interesting. Um, all right, so it's still a little thin. It's a little thin on the college side. I think the NFL slate may be a little stronger. What games in the NFL? Maybe we do some matchups here, guys. Why don't we all pick a game and talk it through a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I'll go. I'll go ahead. I think a, a you know really uh, interesting game is going to be Steelers Titans. I mean, that's that's quite a matchup. I mean, both undefeated. And both you know just looking like gangbusters the last couple of weeks. And so you know, I mean, I kind of. I don't know what it's going to take for me to kind of buy into the Titans as a Super Bowl contending team because I just can't yeah. seem to wrap my mind around it, even though, you know, yeah. we've seen basically, you know, cumulatively about a season worth of really good performance from them now. And I still I, I still can't kind of buy into it. And Pittsburgh's but I, I think it's going to be a, a battle of some amazing defenses. I do think Pittsburgh, I'm, I'm going to call Pittsburgh in this one, just because I think big Ben being able to deal with a really good defense is, is, is going to just, that experience is probably going to bear out compared to Ryan Tannehill, but that's the game of the week. I mean, that's an yeah. amazing game. 
Yeah, it's fantastic. So we have Pitt number three in the league, and we have Tennessee at number nine. Tennessee's hosting this thing, so they'll give a, get a couple of points. But on a neutral field, we'd make it about a one point. So we're going to go mm-hmm. with Tennessee as a, as a slight favorite. What is the line looking like right Pittsburgh now? Pittsburgh minus two. Okay. So we like Tennessee a little bit on that one. But I'm with you. I have a hard time getting my head around that. And Pittsburgh has looked so daunting. Um, it could be that we're a little slow on Pittsburgh right now. Well, I think the game that I'm going to pick is the obvious game. Um, and by the way, you know, we all, you know, there's no, there's no pity in, in Bradlow land, but this is the game I would have been at, um, had they allowed fans, this was Buccaneers <laughs> at Raiders. Uh, this was a big family weekend, uh, to go to that, well, not, fam- not the entire family, me and my oldest son, we were going to the Buccaneers at Raiders. Um, it's a fascinating game because mm-hmm. let's just remember the Raiders are coming off a whipping of the chiefs. Yep. Uh, they handled the chiefs pretty darn good and that's another game that'll give me a barometer I'm not saying the Raiders were a Super Bowl contending team I'm not saying that but if the Buccaneers are going to be a good team they got to win this game because I mean five and two is very different than four and three and in my view they already gave away a game with penalties to the Bears they've now got to go they got to win this game they got to go in there to the Raiders and win this game And and it has the Buccaneers minus three right now that seems lowish to me. I would make the Buccaneers more than a three-point favorite in that even with, even, 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 even with the Raiders coming off a bye. Even yeah, with the Raiders. Give them a little bit. You, that's right. That's worth, that's, that's worth a, you know, maybe three-quarters of a point, half a point, three-quarters of a point, something like that. And what, so what would Massey Peabody have? You already told us the Buccaneers are at like 8.6 or something. What are now, the, the Raiders? Bucks at, at, at 5.3 and the Raiders at minus five. So that's – I'm pushing six on a neutral field. Let's give Vegas two for home. So four, but then also let's give Vegas three quarters for a buy. So about three. That's the line. Tampa Bay minus three. Okay. Eric, I want to play this Bradlow pity card. Y'all were going to go to Vegas. You're usually making trips to see the Bucks in, in Tampa Bay, but y'all were going to go out to Vegas to see the new stadium. That would have been fun. It was. It was also a, going to be like a father-son weekend. It was myself and my oldest son, obviously above the age of 21. It was my first cousin from Tampa and his son and his youngest ah, son. And awful. it was also a friend of his and his father. So it was going to be three fathers and three sons going to the Oh, heck. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um. All right, so what else do we got? What are the games you guys want me to pick here? The the uh, let me just take a quick look. It's so sad that New England. Well, forty nine. I, I I you know again since we're doing sort of our, our our home teams, I think the Patriots forty ers game is a very intriguing game. I mean, they're not obviously, it's not the kind of gangbusters that the Titans versus Steelers is, but I mean, I think that's a game where we're gonna, you know, there's two very high variance teams playing each other, and I think uh, you know it's not a must win game for either of them, but I, I do kind of feel like they're two teams that are sort of searching for a, tra- a positive trajectory, you know, coming out of their recent play. And, and, yeah. and so I think it is a pretty important game. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued to watch that. There's also two other really interesting NFC games. I mean, Seahawks at Cardinals, mm-hmm. we're going to find out if the Cardinals are any good and that's a really interesting game. And then, of course, you know, Bears at Rams. And you say, well, what's that? Well, I don't know. The Bears are five and one. The Rams are four and two. Those are two games that will have serious playoff implications. Oh, yeah, yeah. no, definitely. Especially, especially the Bears-Rams because you kind of like, even even though they kind of are like probably leading their division right now or close to it, you kind of slot those both in as wildcard teams. Correct. Head-to-head record amongst wildcard teams is hugely important. 
Well, I think that at Sealers, Arizona is especially interesting, given what we just saw from Arizona. Obviously, people have been excited about that team for a little bit, just waiting for them to mm-hmm. get their legs. Um, and in Seattle, I mean, it's been so much fun to see those guys throwing the ball around a little bit more this year. Curious what the line is here. We would make it – Arizona's hosting that thing. Arizona's about plus one. Let's make it plus three at home. And then Seattle's about plus five. And so – We'd make it Seattle minus two or so. What is the mm-hmm. line on that one? Three and a half. Seattle favored by three and a half. Okay. So we're a little bit longer on the Cardinals. Not quite an edge, but um, I, I have a hard time pulling for Kyler Murray, but it's a fun team to watch. And so that's quite a I game. think also, you know, there's this, the narrative of, I'll call it two similar quarterbacks, Russell Wilson and Kyler Murray. Although in my view, Russell Wilson's a much better passer than Kyler Murray ever will be. But people like to equate the two of them because body style, running style, physique you know mm-hmm. if you kind of close your eyes you can kind of see the two of them kind of oh you have to squint pretty hard Kyler Murray no one's got a running style like Kyler Murray my gosh that guy was going to play he was going to start in the, in the in major league baseball in center field he's got wheels I mean Russell Wilson in fact was a baseball player but now he's not Kyler Murray fast geez and then he throws a, that bomb he threw he threw a couple to, to uh the one to Kirk that like yeah, eight Kirk. Pass I mean what a catch by Kirk as well but that's just I mean, that's just – you just live for those plays in football. Yeah. I, will, I will say, though, with Russell, he throws those kind of passes, and out of his hand, I'm like, it's going to get caught. I mean, those with, with somebody like Kyle Murray, he throws those bombs. You're like, oh, man, that could be an amazing catch. With Russell Wilson, I'm like, I assume it's just going to be an amazing – you know, I, mean, I, <laughs> I assume exactly it's going to be a catch. where it needs to be. That's it's going right. to be exactly where it needs to be. There's a confidence there. That's, that's absolutely right. And it, I think it shows up in the advanced stats when you look at what he gets done. A completion overexpected is really high number typically for – for us. All right, fellas, that has been the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. We got a fantastic interview coming up with the sporting director of New York City Football Club. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, rolling into the fourth and final quarter of the show. Delighted in this quarter to talk to David Lee. David is the sporting director for New York City Football Club, NYCFC, a major league soccer club in the late stages of their regular season, bearing down on a playoff spot. David, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be here. Delighted to have you. We have um, half an hour or so. Cade Massey hosting here, Eric Bradlow, my longtime collaborator and buddy, Wharton Moneyball faculty colleague, and on the conversation as well. David, for those who don't know, Sporting director is a little bit of an unusual title for American sports, and it's a very meaningful one. So tell us what sporting director means in the world of soccer. Yes, yeah, so sporting director is, um, I suppose, most equivalent with, with a GM, um, a traditional um, U.S. sport franchise. Um, essentially, everything on the, on the sporting side uh, comes into me and, and my team. Um, so everything from our first team, players, coaching staff, um, and all the way down into academy programs. So we have an under 12 academy team, our, our youngest age, um, that all, all kind of, we develop, we work on developing those players to eventually play in our first team. So everything, uh, everything on the sporting side uh, comes into us, usually a sporting director. There are a lot of different titles in MLS for this role, but um, sporting director is one that is kind of consistent across European soccer as well. Right. So um, you are in this position, you've been in this position uh, about a year. Is that right? Is this your full, first full season or your second full season? It is my first full season. Yeah. So just coming up to a year now. Okay. And um, you got there pretty young, right? So you're 33. 
33 years seems pretty young for a sporting director. What, what is your background? How did you end up as NYCFC sporting director at age 33? Yeah. So I was, I was pretty fortunate that um, at an early age, I, I realized I probably wasn't going to be good enough to ever play soccer and make a profession out of it. And so uh, I went to university, I studied, um, I'd studied sports and technology and some, some other things. And um, eventually I, I interned at my local soccer club when I was uh, fresh out of university. And, um, and so got started at a third division club in England um, as a performance analyst, which was back in those days, filming games, uh, cutting up clips, providing some very basic level st- stats and data to, to, a, to a small team. Um, and really built my career from there. And so, you know, I spent a couple of years uh, working at, for the club where, where I lived um, and then was recommended for a job at, at New York Red Bulls um, in MLS about 10, 10 or so years ago. Um, okay. And I was the first person hired to head up an analysis department um, in MLS at the time. Okay. Um, spent three or four years working with them and then moved over on to when I was very fortunate enough to be offered the job at NYCFC back in 2014. Um, to assist and support the sporting director on the strategy, building a club, building a team, um, and move away kind of from the day-to-day game-to-game analysis uh, that I have been doing and into kind of the strategy of how to build a team. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've noticed that players move different leagues. And, you know, soccer is this wonderfully international sport, and over in Europe with the, with the big five leagues, players are always being poached and moving around. And even, you know, a little bit from MLS in Europe back and forth. We've seen that increasingly over the years. Is it also true that executives, we see coaches do that, but I, we don't have as much visibility in the executive side. You've obviously moved from one of the British leagues to the U.S. Is that common? Is it, is it increasingly common? How do you think about it? Yeah, so I think particularly recently, there has been a trend of going to um, MLS clubs, particularly hiring um, sporting directors, general managers uh, from that have experience in Europe. Um, and so in this offseason, I think there are three or four that went to various clubs across MLS. So I think it's becoming it's becoming more more common. Um, I also think there's some really talented American general managers as well that have been doing a fantastic job in MLS for a long time. And so, um, you know, there hasn't been too much movement the other way yet. But um, given the work that I think a lot of people are doing in MLS, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, David, just building on your comment about, um, you know, you thought maybe you at 16 or 17, you realized you weren't good enough as a player. Um maybe demystify something for all of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. So I never played soccer, but I have three sons that played. So I've watched a lot of soccer and I watched the English premier league. Let's assume I know something about analysis and analytics. It's what I do for a living. Let's assume I know how to manage people. Let's pretend. I mean, I'm the chair of a department. Let's say I'm, I can manage people. Let's pretend. What stops me from being like the Paul D. Podesta or Billy Bean and just go on in and being a sporting director of a soccer club? Like, do I have to know the sport or can I just know managing analytics? And do I have to really know anything about the sport to do it? I think it's certainly helpful. Yeah. Don't hold back, David. Do not do not hold back. In your... <laughs> I'm answer, asking the question that the Wharton Moneyball listeners who have a dream someday to be a sporting director. I think it's definitely helpful for sure. Um, you know, I think we, there's a, you're right. There's a lot of people management. There's a lot of analytical uh, work that goes on into a sporting director, a GM's job, but um, ultimately we've got to make decisions based on kind of our experience, knowing the game and, and understanding what we know about the sport to try and make the best decisions of players that we hire or, or recruit or uh, release coaches, all those types of things. So it's definitely very helpful to, to know the game. I've spent a long time. I've certainly learned a lot from, from the experiences I had um, at all the clubs that I've worked at where, 
I've been very fortunate to work with people who have been in the game for a lot, lot longer than I have. Um, and they've been help, helpful to, to teach and Im improve my knowledge uh, even further of the game than, than I had when I first joined. David, I'm going to push you just a little bit on this. If, you, if, if you'll indulge us and make it a little more concrete, can you give us an example of one of the reasons why you were hired? So, for example, you talked about the, a big break was coming to MLS, the Red, the Red Bulls Club back in 2011 or 2010, and then again to NYCFC a few years later. Why did those clubs hire you? What was it that, that you had showed or accomplished to that point? So I, I think I had a, a – I think you probably need to ask them would be the, would be the professional sure. and simple answer uh, sure. to, know, to know why they wanted to hire me. Um, I, I think my – my skill set has been, you know, trying to um, use information and trying to have the best information I possibly can to help me make decisions, whether that was as an analyst at, at Red Bulls or now becoming um, initially as technical director at NYCFC for the last last six years and then as sporting director this this last year. So, you know, I think um, I, I think I've been able to connect with connect with people um, and try and use that information to help me make and support as many good decisions as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so David, mm -hmm. I can imagine what an analyst does in soccer or a technical director, but I guess I don't have to wonder because you're here with us. So what is the state of analytics or analysis in soccer today? I mean, we've had people, we've been on Wharton Moneyball for six and a half years. We've heard people talk about number of shots created. We've heard people talk about space created by a, a player. Of course, you can always talk about the speed of the shot or accuracy, but you know, what, what are the roles of analysis and let's say, you know, technology in soccer today? Yeah. So I think something that's been quite, quite common for, for years in soccer is that the data, the data analytics has lagged behind, particularly the other U.S. sports. Um, and I think that's still true today, although we are catching up, um, perhaps not as quickly as we would like. But I think the, the data is becoming more sophisticated um, in, in soccer. So you're right, 10, 10 or so years ago, you were talking about counting just shots and passes and things like that, and maybe don't have a huge actual impact on the outcome or underlying performances or really understanding underlying performances. I think the... The, where we are now in, a, in MLS particularly, we've just signed this year a tracking deal with Second Spectrum. We work in obviously NBA. Um, and so when you talk about trying to understand space, understand decision making, these are really crucial parts of a fluid game where you've got 22, um, 23, including the ball, interactive, um, interactive elements for 90 minutes. You know, trying to have having the tracking data is incredibly useful to be able to really start to understand decision making, understand where the space is on the pitch and those types of things that had hadn't been all that easy to analyze um, using data, particularly when we only had um, typically on ball data, passes, touches, those types of things, interactions with the ball. And so, you know, we're in MLS, we're still at the relatively early stages. We only have a, had a tracking deal for, for this year. And so we're, we're building out that capability now, but in European soccer, it's existed for, for a little longer. Um, so the Premier League and other leagues have had access to this tracking data for a little bit. We're very fortunate. We have City Football Group as our ownership. Um, and so they, we have a team in the Premier League in Manchester City. So we've been able to kind of utilize some of the developments they've been able to, to make over the years in using this tracking data to, to try and begin to impart some of that knowledge into, into NYCFC. Let's talk a little bit more about that because tracking data has been so important across a number of sports. And yet it does pose a real challenge to an organization wanting to get into it because it's not as easy as, you know, downloading basic, you know, box score stats, which anybody can process. You're talking about millions of observations and very complicated analysis. 
you're talking about geographic analysis as opposed to the, you know, our typical regressions. So how does one go about that, David? So all of a sudden, so you're a sporting director, you've got a background in performance, you understand analytics, and all of a sudden you have access to continuous data on all the players all the time. How do you even tackle that? Like, honestly, how does an organization go? Now you mentioned you've got the Citigroup's backing. And so they've, they've been doing it for a while. Great expertise. That's one advantage. But how do you think about how you tackle that problem from scratch? Big problem from scratch. Yeah. So, so I think, I think we are, as I mentioned, we are extremely fortunate having City Football Group because so the, the way that we're structured, we have an analytics team um, that is kind of a centralized team. Um, so we have 10 clubs around the world. So we have a central analytics team that can then um, you know, work for each of our teams. So we have a lot of knowledge that is built in um, centrally that I can go and tap into. So if I have questions, you know, I certainly don't understand the data well enough to be able to do that type of analytics myself uh, with the data. But I have the team that I can go in and ask and ask questions and pose questions that I, I would like answered on how, how are we performing, how are individual players or the team performing, potential new recruits, any of those types of things that I would like to that I would like to ask, I can go and ask them and, and they're the ones with the, the technical knowledge and the technical expertise to be able to build the tools to service and support the clubs that we have within the group. Mm-hmm. David, how many other MLS clubs are affiliated with other international soccer organizations? Oh, good question. So the, the most the most prevalent, I would say, is, is New York Red Bulls, who have a Red Bull soccer portfolio in Europe. There are there are other owners that have um, have teams in Europe as well. So um, Kroenke Sports and Entertainment Group own Colorado Rapids. They also own Arsenal in England. Um, so there are a few others. Um, but in terms of kind of soccer groups, I would say certainly City Football Group and probably Red Bull are the two most most obvious that come to mind. Yeah, it's, it sounds like a big advantage. And you're probably, you're probably still figuring out ways to take advantage of that and build on that. And obviously, it's one of the reasons organizations like that want to, want to have multiple so they can, build, they can have scale on some of these centralized resources. It's really, really interesting. Yes, yeah, so yeah. I was going to ask you of all the areas that you think about applying analytics, like you could imagine it. I mean, we've talked about this for again for six and a half years on various sports. It could be analytics for training getting people to have peak performance. You can imagine the on pitch or on field side, which is analytics for that. You could also imagine analytics for contracts. You know, what's the transfer payment that should be made for this player or what's the salary going to be, which maybe all are exciting to you, but like which ones do you think are most advanced and which ones are kind of most exciting to you as someone that basically is responsible for all of this? Yeah. So I think, you know, you're exactly right. We, we think of it in, I would suppose three real main areas. One is kind of medical sports science and, and human performance. One is talent and talent management that encompasses everything from scouting, recruiting, what fee we should pay exactly. Um, and then there's the on, on pitch performance. How is our team playing? How are they performing? How are individuals performing within, within the given, given roles and, and context they have? I think we are probably most developed in one area in medical. We've had GPS data to track, you know, how far players are running. So we have, we have that that's quite good, but assessing injury risk is really, really tricky um, in soccer. And so probably we still have a lot of way to go to be able to really kind of do something more as in depth as we would like in that area. From the talent side, I think we've, we've been able to build, um, a really good kind of database and way of working to ident- work how we should identify talent um, and bring talent into the organization. So from about from valuation models to identifying players within our database, you know, I think you said at the outset, one of the most exciting things about soccer is it's a global game. So we have there's so many players 
so many leagues, so many um, kind of variables when we talk about acquiring a player that using data to try and answer some of those questions is really, really helpful. So we can try and start to start to identify the players that we do want to bring into the club. Mm-hmm. What is the age roughly that you can, since you guys mentioned that you also have youth leagues, I, mean, I see here that you've been very successful in U19, uh, et cetera. Can you guys tell, like, I don't know, a senior in high school or someone, you know, h- how early can you tell that someone's on a trajectory towards potentially being a professional soccer player? Yes. One thing we tell all of our academy players particularly is that you know, everybody's pathway is different. There'll be some players that are capable of making playing in first teams at 15, 16 years old. Um, there's some that might might take 18, 19, 20, 21. There are kids that, that you know, go to college for a full four years and then come out and have, make a really good impact in MLS. So, you know, one pathway is not right for everybody. And so we try not to make a determination too early. You, you always hope you have some of the some of the obvious talents in front of you that you that you just know at 15, 16 and 17 are going to be be really important players for you. Um, but we try and provide options for every player so that we can maximize, maximize their potential and, and maximize their development and whatever that might entail. David, this academy system is something that's a hallmark of international soccer, but it's relatively foreign to the United States. How long have you guys been doing it here in the U.S.? And what's been your experience getting something like that off the ground in a place where we don't really have a history and culture supporting it? Yeah, so from New York City specifically, we've been around five years as an academy. Um, Academies came into MLS, I believe, in around 2007. I think I might be be a a little earlier, a little later than that. Um, but you're right. It's a relatively new development. Academies are in a long term investments, um, you know, trying to produce players from the age of 12 or 13 or 14 or 15. You know, it takes kind of a systematic develop um, investment in the development, in the coaching, in every area to really develop these players um, to, to be the best they possibly can be. I think we are now starting to see some really talented young players come from academies all across uh, the US um, and making impacts in MLS and ultimately in Europe as well at, at the highest levels. Um, so I think the growth of the academies has been something that's been really quite fascinating, I think, for everybody. There was, you know, there are local youth clubs that do a terrific job, particularly in New York. There are a lot of them that do a really, really good job developing developing young players. And we've been able to take that on and, and take those players and hopefully give them a professional opportunity and a professional pathway. So obviously a club has an interest in developing good academies and a pipeline for their own talent. And those who have been best in the world have a real advantage from those pipelines. But presumably even the, you know, the U S as a country would benefit from such a thing, right? We fans of U S soccer have lamented the lack of success by the national team for decades. And we've been talking for decades about it being just around the corner. Um, is, is it, is it hyperbole to say, well, we've never had an Academy system. And now with MLS building academies, we might actually start making more progress because this is, this is what real development looks like in these other countries. So I think I think U.S. soccer has produced some really fantastic players over the time. One of my probably my biggest mentor, my person I used to work for, Claudio Reyna, being being maybe at the for, forefront of that. And and so I think I think U.S. has produced exceptional soccer players um, before academies existed. And so you know I think what academies allows you to do is take a more systematic approach to it, and hopefully a much bigger scale. Um, so, you, you know, we have, there will eventually be 30 MLS clubs, all of them with academies, you know, hopefully producing players at a much higher rate um, that can, that can produce some play at MLS level or, or beyond. And so, you know, 
I certainly think the development of academies is is a huge thing for US soccer and and the future of the national team, absolutely. And I think the more good work that MLS clubs, local clubs, everybody does in player development can only have a good impact on on US soccer. But um, I do think there's been a lot of very, very talented US US soccer players over the years. and, and, And I hope we're part of producing some of the next ones. David, one follow-up, just I'm curious to, to parents who have kids out there and, and you hear about kids, you know, maybe trying to get into academy or at least trying to develop skills as a very young, as a very young athlete. You're also, again, into analytics. Do you think it's, is it good or a bad idea to introduce analytics at such an early age? Is it good or a bad idea to put these GBS monitors on 12-year-old kids playing soccer? Like what, is the, what is your take on the intersection between analytics and youth development in soccer? It's really, it's a really interesting question. Um, so we, we do not do GPS on, on kids that, that young. Um, I think there's always a danger with, um, with having access to the data is one thing, how that's communicated, how it's used, how it's utilized um, is a really separate problem. And, and you open up doors to potential issues when we're capturing so much data, if we're not careful in how that's being shared. And does somebody, does, does a player, a parent, a coach, take that information and use it incorrectly is, is one of a, a big worry of mine. And so I think we have to be really careful. Um, I, I don't think we want to soccer is meant to be fun. Um, and I don't think we want to take anything away from that at the youngest ages from, from kids having fun and enjoying it. And if the kids at the youngest ages are, are enjoying, um, enjoying ha- playing soccer, then I think we'll, we'll see the benefit of that. I think we are certainly as the, as the players get older, even at the youngest age groups, you know, we're trying to in, introduce and make sure, they all understand that we film the games. And so they have video clips. They can watch themselves play. They can assess their performances in a, in a subjective way with their coach, talk about their individual development. So not specifically the use of data, but we are trying to ingrain in, in them a way that we, how to assess their performances, how they can assess their own performance, how a coach can assess them, because that's something that will happen as they get older and come into a first team. It's obviously something that happens very regularly. Right. Right. Maybe building on uh, your answer and also on Cade's question, I want to ask you, um, again, uh, I have kids that played multiple sports and I have actually one son, my middle son is a D1 athlete in squash, um, but he had an opportunity maybe to be a greater squash player if he had given up all the other sports. And he also was the starting center back for his high school soccer team and he made all county and he's like, why would I do that? Why would I give up these other sports? And so what's your thoughts? What do the other, maybe you've looked at it analytically, or maybe it's just you as someone that's been in the game for a long time. Should a 16, 17 year old that wants to be great in soccer, we always hear these stories. Wow. You know, this person also played basketball. Wow. They also played tennis, which helped their footwork. Do kids have to specialize to become great in soccer? I think it depends on the age. Um, I think early specialization, I, I'm not particularly in favor of. Um, what constitutes early, I think, is is now, is now up for debate. Um, I think kids playing multiple sports at the youngest ages is fantastic. Um, it, you know, playing basketball is, you can take things from playing basketball um, that are very attributable to soccer. Um, and so I think there are, there are a bunch of positives that, that come from it. I think, you know, ultimately at a certain point, um, I think, you will have to focus on um, a sport that you want to pursue at the, at the highest level you possibly can to get the most out of it. Um, I don't know what that age is. I, I haven't figured, figured that part out yet, but, um, but I do think playing multiple sports is a, up to a certain age is a good thing. And what about specialization and positions? Like, have you ever said to yourself, 
we're just going to draft this person or we're just going to get this person and we'll find where to put them on the field. Like can a center back also at some point be a midfielder can also be a striker or no. I mean, like, cause you think about baseball, people can move from the outfield to the infield. Sometimes the NFL, I guess a little bit of movement, you know, basketball. Oh, this person was a point guard in high school and now they grew a lot and they're a center. Is, is that possible in soccer or not really? I think positions can be somewhat flexible um, and there are some that are quite analogous to others. Um, So a centre-back playing as a central midfield player is quite quite common. Um, For us, we have specific profiles for for what we require for each position on the pitch. So we might look at a player who's not playing in a position for his current team um, and we see something different. We see that player playing a different role for us because he fits the profiles and he has the, the, the characteristics that we look for in a slightly different position. They are not normally too big. We're not ever likely to look at a goalkeeper and think he's a left winger or, or a striker and think they're a central defender. Um, but, you know, I think we, we're constantly assessing players against our own profiles and, and model. And um, I think that's been something that's been helpful for us so far. Um, I think at the youngest ages, we are trying to challenge players by, you know, we talk about the academy, by playing them in different positions. It's very difficult to know what position a 12 year old is likely to play as a 17 18 year old and so trying to give them experiences uh, you have ideas on the pitch of where you see them but um trying to give them experiences in different positions um, as they grow um, and in different games to challenge and develop them is, is all part of their development mm-hmm. very cool david just in the last couple of minutes we have here can you give us an update on how mls is doing in general and how you're coping with the coronavirus you guys I'm assuming we're suspended for a long time. You've been playing this compressed schedule, a game every three days, which sounds insane for soccer. What's the state of the MLS right now? And what do you think the impact of the pandemic has been? Yeah, so 2020 has certainly been a challenge, as I'm sure probably everybody would would say that they've spoken to in every sport. Um, MLS is no different. I think, you know, we were, we were two games into the season when, when, the shutdown happened um and so we you know we then had a had a break like everybody else during lockdown we resumed in a bubble um in orlando playing a kind of uh, the mls is back tournament um and then we moved back into a more regular normal schedule where we're traveling to away games and hosting games um, in new york so um it's been a difficult year um you know fortunately you know we've had kept everybody kind of safe in new york and um kind of health and safety of everybody has been a been a main priority but I think MLS has done an unbelievable job to get the season to the point that we are now where we're closing in on the playoffs and we're doing a, you know, I think everyone's really excited for the end of the season and, and trying to, trying to compete and win a championship. David, give us a sense of what it's like to be the sporting director in a club who's trying to stay coronavirus free and especially not in the bubble anymore. Like just give us some sense of what it's been like to try to keep everybody COVID negative. Stressful. Um, that, that's for sure. Um, it's. Uh, I think you just have to keep reminding people all the time of of the precautions they need to take. We have protocols in place from from MLS and then from a club to try and keep everyone safe. Um, you have to keep reminding players and staff that we're all responsible to each other right now. And so um, everybody's safety is everybody's responsibility at the moment. And so making good decisions when you're away from the training ground and with your family, um, it's not easy. You know, I have a son who goes to school because we need him to go to school, and you know, it, it just. Wow. It, it's life. It's life. And so we have to, we have to carry on, but I think we've got to, we've got to try and keep everybody safe and understand that everybody is, um, everyone's responsible for each other. 
Mm-hmm. David, I was just going to ask you related to COVID and, you know, as statisticians, we think it's a source of, let's call it increased variance. Do you think this is a year where someone could come out of nowhere? Like I'll make it up. Maybe the team that just squeaks into the MLS playoffs, maybe that's happened a ton of times before. And I apologize because I don't know, but is this a chance where like, you know, like in the NBA, the heat came out of nowhere. They were the fifth seed in the East. They made it to the finals. Um, we may see the same in baseball. It turns out it was the two best teams, the Dodgers and the Rays were actually the two best teams do you think like could a six seed in the eastern conference and i'm intentionally picking the six seed currently in the eastern conference could they go ahead and win the whole thing is this a year because increased variance it's kind of like not everyone's had the same amount of training they need etc what do you think yeah so a compressed schedule means we're only playing 23 games uh this year so um no we'd always you know as always the bigger sample the more the, the more confident you are in uh in where teams should be you know i think there are some very good teams at the top of the league, and I wouldn't be surprised if they uh, if they go go the distance. But you know, I, I certainly think there are teams that um, you know maybe just in, in and around the playoff qualification that have every chance to to go to go on a run. I think with MLS and soccer in general, it's uh, it's a very it's a very unique unique sport. Low scoring, one knockout round game, similar to NFL, and and so you know it doesn't take a lot for a team to to kind of go on a run. And I think everybody's hoping to get in the playoffs, and then and then do that and, and make it to the final. Well, David, we wish you the best with your run to the playoffs, and we'll be following you. We'll be pulling for you. We've been talking to David Lee. He's sporting director of New York City FC. That is the uh, U.S. sport equivalent of general manager running the show there at NYC FC. They are just a couple of games away from wrapping up their regular season and then on to a, um, an exciting playoff run. David, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Absolutely. And that has been another two-hour episode of Wharton Moneyball for the whole crew here, for Audie Weiner, who is out and about today, but with us in spirit, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Maddie D, Dion Simpkins, the whole crew. Appreciate your listening. Come back and join us next week between now and then. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.